Thank you for checking out the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. Easter Sunday is right around the corner, and we would love for you to make plans to be at Collective that day. It's going to be an amazing Sunday, so mark your calendars for April 9th. You won't want to miss it. For more information, make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church. Now let's get into Sunday's message. So I debated really hard about whether or not to wear this today after last night's loss. Man, that was brutal. Uh, 160 more games to go. We're going to win 160 of them, so it's okay. I'm optimistic. Um, so as you know, Easter Sunday is next week, and when you came in this morning, in more invite cards were on your seats, more Reese's. Uh, if you ate your Reese's on the way home last week because you have no self-control, there's another one. It's not for you. Remember, it's to invite. Uh, or if you got home last week, you invited a bunch of people, and you realize there are more people that you want to try to invite to Easter, here's another chance. Uh, this past week, I got a text from a friend of mine who said he went into work, and one of his coworkers who doesn't go to Collective saw our Instagram post about the invite cards and was like, yo, where's my Reese's? <laughs> so don't disappoint, okay? Um, now, typically, I don't, I don't talk a ton about Easter or Christmas as we get into it. I usually give it about a week instead of three. Um, but one of the reasons I've spent so much time the last few Sundays encouraging us to invite um, is because one of the things that we've noticed in this church and really seen over the past six years is that one Sunday can legitimately change somebody's life, right? One Sunday and one opportunity for people to experience God's grace and his love can change the trajectory of their life forever. And ultimately, as a church, that's what we want, right? This isn't just for ourselves, but for the people in our life who need this as well. And so my hope and my prayer next week is that so many people show up that we run out of seats, Right, I would love for this to be the most uncomfortable service for you all because you have to actually sit next to the people that you're in a row with, okay? We even rented more seats. We bought more seats. They're showing up. Hopefully, we're going to pack those out as well because um, we want as many people as possible to hear about the good news of Jesus, about how him dying on a cross and resurrecting from the dead can actually change our life and move us toward the things that we long for, things like hope and peace and purpose. Now, we don't know how many people to expect next week. Um, but what we want to do is we want to make this the best experience as possible for everyone. So I have a challenge for you. If you call Collective Your Church Home, right, this is your place. These are your people, whether you want to admit that or not. But this is your church. Here's what I have to ask of you next week. I need you to show up a little bit early. I need you to park in the far lot. I need you to sit in the front few rows, and I need you to scoot in, Okay. You guys, some of you are dying right now. You parked in the first spot. You're sitting in the way back, right? Um, but, but here's the thing. We know more people will show up next Sunday than this Sunday, right? right? It's Easter. And we know that there are people here who have been praying really hard for weeks and months and even years that their neighbor will show up, that their spouse will show up, that their child will show up. And so we want to do everything we can to make this the best experience possible. We don't want parking to create a barrier, Right? You know what it feels like to park in that far lot and start to walk your way up here and wonder, should I be here? Right? Especially when you've been a first-time guest. And so we don't want other people to experience that. We don't want a line at Collective Kids or at coffee to start to create insecurities. We don't want people looking for seats to pull them away from worship. We want the best parking spots and the best seats and the easiest experience possible for people coming to Collective for the first time next week so they can fully hear and receive what God has for them. Because right? what we understand is we might only have one weekend 
one hour. So let's do everything we can to make this the best experience possible. So if Collectors is your church home, you cool with that? All right, I'm not going to be in the parking lot judging you, so I just have to trust you. All right, so let me do this. Um, I'm going to pray for you, so I'm going to pray for next Sunday. Um, I, I really want to pray for these invite cards and, and who you guys are inviting, and then, then we'll jump into the sermon for today. So pray with me. God, thank you so much, um, uh, really, that every single Sunday we get to celebrate your grace and your mercy and um, your hope and how all of that is true because of the fact that you resurrected from the dead. But God, even more so as we, we look toward Easter, we look toward next week, the day where we fully go all in on why this matters so much. God, we pray um, for the best Sunday possible. God, we pray that people um, eat those Reese's this week and realize maybe there's a church I should go to. God, I I pray this week um, that we have the courage to invite, that we have um, the opportunities to invite. And ultimately, God, that, that people show up next week longing for something and looking for something, and they realize that it's you the thing that's been missing from their life and the thing that can help them get through the storm that they're in and and help them find the peace that they want. God, we thank you uh, for your resurrection. We thank you for Easter and the opportunity to celebrate that every year. And um, God, we pray uh, next week that so many people show up that we have to walk really far and uh, we have to sit by people that we don't usually sit by and we just scoot up a little bit and, and get here a little bit early because of what you're doing in this church and really in this community and in our lives. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So my childhood best friend was a guy named Elliot, and Elliot grew up in the Catholic Church like many people, but sometime around middle school, he kind of disconnected. It really wasn't something he was interested in, but his mother, on the other hand, was very devout. It was prayer on Saturdays, mass on Sundays, confession on Wednesdays, communion on Fridays, And the first time I went over to his house, he kind of warned me um, that there'd be Jesus stuff everywhere, but he definitely undersold it. There were, (laughs) some of you have those parents, don't you? Some of you are those people. Uh, There were Jesus pictures in every single room of his house. Uh, In fact, on the mantle, there was a picture of Jesus. I think he's laughing. You guys know, he's like leaning back. You've seen that picture before. There was Jesus laughing and then Elliot's school picture. And then Jesus crying in his brother's school picture. Don't know what that means. But in the middle of it all was this very famous print of a painting called Christ Crucified by Diego Velazquez. This is the painting. This is probably one of those famous crucifixion paintings in the world. Some of you had this in your house growing up, right? If you grew up Catholic, this is part of the starter kit, okay? You're sprinkled as a baby, you get a strong sense of guilt, and apparently this crucifixion painting, okay? So in the art world, crucifixion is one of the things that was painted the most. There's crucifixion art everywhere. Here's another one. This is by Salvador Dali. Um, This is probably my favorite depiction of the crucifixion just because of the depth of the imagery, right? This is unlike most of the paintings you will see. My wife, Ray, taught us a few weeks ago that in order to experience art differently, we take time to see, think, and wonder. And this painting, more than most, encourages me to wonder. The perspective of the crucifixion is unique from the top down. The black void at the top and the bottom, there's this boat. You can even see a fisherman in the bottom corner. There's so much symbolism in this painting. Now, here's one more. This is called The Yellow Christ by Paul Gauguin. Uh, It's one of the weirder crucifixion paintings out there. 
Um, it looks like a Massachusetts fall day while Jesus is getting crucified. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, but there are a ton of different crucifixion paintings where Jesus is the center of it. And just like the three paintings we just looked at, most crucifixion art has the same thing in common. They only show Jesus on the cross. Right? They don't really show the crowd. The last one had a few people in it. They don't show the full intensity of the moment. They don't even show that Jesus wasn't the only person on a cross that day. And because of that, I think many of the crucifixion paintings out there kind of miss out on some of the power of what was happening that day. And so as we continue in our series called Inspired By, where we're reading through Jesus' last days, we're reading through his death, burial, and resurrection, and we're using art inspired by these moments to help us dig into these stories, we're going to look at a piece of art that's based on the crucifixion called Christ on a Cross by Peter Paul Rubens that doesn't just show Jesus. And so let's check this out. Here's the painting. I'll give you a second to take it. This one's intense, right? especially compared to what we just looked at a little bit earlier. And so like I said, this is called Christ on the Cross, but it is also sometimes nicknamed Christ between the two murderers. Now Rubens was born in Germany. He grew up in Belgium and learned how to paint in Italy. He was heavily influenced by the Italian Renaissance and the works of the Ninja Turtles, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael, right? You've been thinking it for the past two weeks, okay? So we're just going to say it. Now, he is considered a Renaissance painter. He kind of painted in between these two eras, but he's most often labeled, and his style most often reflect what was called Baroque. Now, Baroque art emphasizes dramatic, exaggerated motion, but has a very clear and easily interpreted set of details, if you look at this painting, you can kind of see how both of these movements impacted him. Right? The colors are very much from the Renaissance. It's those deep reds, those dark tones. But the way that he painted the people with the movement was very much a Baroque style. This work was commissioned by the Duke and Duchess of Mantua of Italy and is currently in a museum in Belgium in the town that he grew up in. And there is a lot going on in this painting. You notice that Jesus is right in the middle, being crucified, but there are also two other men being executed that day in the same way. In the bottom left are the Roman soldiers. These are the ones who are tasked with carrying out the crucifixion. They were ordered to make sure the process was complete and that Jesus truly died on the cross. This is why one of the soldiers is piercing his side with a lance. It's to confirm his death. It's to make sure he is absolutely dead. Right below that, uh, in the middle, right underneath the cross, is Mary Magdalene. Right, she holds her hands up in protest. Jesus' mother, Mary, is seen at the bottom right. She's wearing a black cape, which typically she would wear blue. It was like the sign of royalty. But in this one, she's wearing black, and it's a sign of mourning, right, knowing what's to come. She's depicted in utter torment for what the soldier is about to do to her son and turns her head away, unable to look. To Mary's left in red is one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, this is John. Um, there's this beautiful moment in the Gospels where Jesus looks at John and says, this is your mother now, right? So this is the guy that was there with him at the crucifixion. Uh, behind the Virgin Mary is another Mary, um, and she clasps her hands in prayer. And in the background at the very bottom, you see a few other people. They don't really know who they are, but they look like onlookers, right? People watching this experience. And so take it in. Now that we've seen this painting, we're going to read the story. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump out of the book of Matthew, which we've been in the past two weeks. We're going to jump over to the book of Luke. Luke. This is another biography to Jesus. This is another book written about his life. 
And picking up from last week, we talked about how Simon helped Jesus carry the cross to the place of his death. And then this is what happens. It's the crucifixion. Starting in Luke 2, verse, or Luke 23, starting in verse 32. It says this. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Right? We just saw that in the painting. And so there's a few things I want to give a little bit of context to. The first is that Jesus wasn't the only person being executed that day because there were two other criminals with him. And that makes sense because when the Romans would do these types of executions, they would do it in mass. Right? There would always be multiple crucifixions at the same time. And we don't know a lot about these guys, but historians have discovered that in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was reserved for people that the Roman government deemed worthless. Typically, this was reserved for people who committed murder or treason. They were going against the state of Rome. But they were also part of lower social classes. And so part of the assumption is that these men were poor. These men were enemies of the Roman Empire. And by societal standards of the time, these men's men were seen as worthless. Right? And that includes how they felt about Jesus. The second is that when the Bible talks about crucifixion, uh, we almost think that it's this immediate form of execution, right? That it's quick, um, it's a spectacle, but it's something that goes fast. Um, But that wasn't the case. Crucifixion was intended to be a gruesome and bloody, uh, ultimately a warning to other people. This is what will happen if you break the law. This was the most painful and humiliating death imaginable. Um, The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion, for a reason. Crucifixions would take hours, um, and that would be the cross part of it. It wouldn't even be kind of the beating part of it that we talked about last week, but it could take hours, but in some cases, it would take two to three days for people to die. And what's even more awful about this is that it was typical for there to be a crowd for people to watch as if they were spectators at a sporting event. And so that is what Jesus and these two men we're going through. It was physically, emotionally, and mentally devastating. There's one more thing about these two verses I want to point out. It says that they were brought to a place called the skull. And if you grew up in church or you have heard this story before, it's possible that you learned that the place where Jesus was crucified is called Golgotha or Calvary. And the thing is, all three of these refer to the same location. In Aramaic, which is the language that they spoke during that time, the word for skull is Golgotha. And in Latin, which is the first language that the Bible is translated into, the word for skull is Calvary. And so if you go to Israel, you go to the skull or Golgotha or Calvary. It's all the same place. Now, there's something else that's amazing about the skull. It looked like that because it was an old rock quarry where they would cut out limestone. And that's what they used to build most of their buildings 2,000 years ago. And so in your head, imagine there's this hill, right? It's a massive rock formation of white limestone with large pieces cut out of it, which is why it looked like a skull, hence the nickname. But there's more. At some point, while they are cutting out limestone, they realize that the stone was impure. Limestone's already kind of a soft rock, um, but they, they realized that this wouldn't be good for buildings, and so they stopped mining this location, and that's where they decided to crucify criminals on an, on an abandoned quarry. Last summer, while Ray and I were in Israel, we got to go there, and we've got to touch these stones. 
And our tour guide pointed out that there's something deeply meaningful about the fact that Jesus was crucified on land that the Roman Empire deemed as worthless. Golgotha was a dead land. And so Jesus was treated like a criminal who had no value. He was murdered like a man who was worthless. And it all happened on a hill where people believed nothing good could ever come from it. But Jesus redeemed all of that. And he did that so that he could bring value to people like us. And I think that's a pretty incredible part of the story. So now that we understand these three things, let's get back to reading the story. So the men are nailed to a cross to die. And as Jesus hung there, verse 34 says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Even in the middle of the most excruciating and humiliating death known to man, Jesus is fighting for forgiveness. He's asking God to forgive the Jewish leaders who accused him of blasphemy, to, to forgive the Romans who beat, humiliated, and nailed him to a cross, to forgive the crowd who's cheering it all on. And if that doesn't show you the character of Jesus, I don't really know what will. If you've ever wondered about Jesus' love for people, this shows just how much our lives matter to him. He doesn't ask God for them to be punished. He doesn't want vengeance. He asks for forgiveness, to forgive them and ultimately to forgive us. Jesus' desire in one of the lowest moments of his life wasn't revenge. It was forgiveness. And it doesn't matter how far you've walked away from God. It doesn't matter what you have said or done. It doesn't matter if you're one of the people on the ground yelling, crucify him. Jesus' number one desire is that we get to have a relationship with God, that we get to experience life to the fullest that he has for us. And oftentimes we think of God as a vengeful God, as a spiteful God, as an angry God, as this all-powerful deity who exists to punish But this story reminds us that even in the middle of his crucifixion, he is asking God to extend grace to the very people who are killing him. The story continues. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Skipping a verse, it says, They called out to him, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And so three times Jesus is challenged to save himself, but the third time it's not the crowd. It's one of the men on the crosses beside him. The story continues, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And so one of the criminals on the cross questions whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, but the other criminal believes that he is. And we don't really know why. We don't know a lot about this guy. We don't know. Maybe he saw Jesus perform miracles. Maybe he was around in one of those crowds where he experienced that. We don't know. Uh, Maybe he understood the prophecies of the Old Testament. He was looking at Jesus, realizing that he was the one completing those. We We don't really know. But while he was hanging on a cross, knowing that his death was imminent, he believes. But he doesn't just believe, and this is really important, he repents. The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. Ultimately, it's the idea of changing the way that we are thinking or turning away from the life that we're living, turning away from our sin, turning away from the death and destruction and the path that we're on and doing a 180 toward God. And on the cross, that is what this guy does. He repents. He acknowledges, I've messed up. I deserve this punishment, but you don't. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, if you've ever wondered what Jesus' love for people looks like, the story tells us. Because the last thing that he did before dying was offer grace to a criminal who was hanging on a cross right next to him. And this is how this part ends. It says, by this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Now, just like every week in this series, there are so many things about this story that we can learn and wrestle with when it comes to our faith. But here's what I want to point out. And really, it's the reason why I picked the painting uh, today as our reference. How we respond to Jesus really comes down to the two choices that are personified in the men that are on the crosses with him. Right? Think about it. There are two paths, two ways to respond to Jesus. We can either mock him We can deny him. We can choose not to believe that he is the son of God, or we can repent. We can turn our lives toward him. We can put our faith in him. We could follow him. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the thing that you need to write down. There are two deals on the table, and you get to choose which one you take. There's really two choices, and they're personified in both of those men. But, but let me make this a little bit more personal. Because so, sometimes I think uh, when I put slides up there and I'm like, hey, write this down. And you see that word you, you stop thinking about me. Right? So, so, so if you are taking notes, write this down instead. There are two deals on the table and I get to choose which one I take. Right? This, is about, this is about yourself and your faith and your decisions and how you respond to them. When I was in high school, uh, I got caught cheating on a math quiz. Not great. Uh, In fact, I cheated off of my friend Elliot, who slid me the answers while the teacher wasn't looking. And we got caught because the answer that I copied from his quiz was so incredibly wrong that that the teacher knew there's no way that both of them are this dumb. And so she put two and two together. We got busted. Uh, When passing back the quizzes, she put everyone's quiz on their desk except for ours and said, if you don't have a quiz, come see me after class. And so we stayed after class, and she gave us two choices. She said, you could take the quiz again, or you could take a zero. And so Elliot decided to take the quiz again, but I did not. (laughs) High school Michael was very dumb, okay? Uh, Instead of taking the quiz, what I tried to do instead was I tried to convince her that she was wrong, (laughs) that I didn't cheat. It's because of her. I refused to acknowledge that I did anything wrong, and I got a zero. You know, there were two choices, and I clearly made the wrong one. And I passed the class barely, but I suffered the consequences. But when it comes to Jesus, we get a choice. And the thing is, you can do whatever you want. You have the freedom to choose for yourself. No one can choose for you. They can't. This is your choice and your choice alone. But putting this as bluntly as I can, there is a right choice and there is a wrong choice. There is a choice that leads to life and a choice that leads to death. Sure, both of these men would end up dying that day on a cross next to Jesus. Right? In fact, they would make sure that they were dead by the end of the night because of the fact that the next day, you know, being a Sunday morning, you know, they weren't going to touch dead bodies that day. So those men died within hours of Jesus. And both of those men, we read the Bible today, and how are they described? As criminals. Right? They're still criminals who died on a cross that day, but one of them chose grace and one of them did not. 
One of them chose Jesus and one of them did not. One chose heaven and one did not. And while our circumstances might be different, we still have the same choices to make. And so we have to wrestle with which one are we making? Which path are we going down? Students, I'm talking just to you right now. Lean in. You are in this room because you should be wrestling with your faith right now. You are in this room because we believe that you are at a place where you can start making those decisions. So if you are a middle schooler in high school, ask yourself this question, which path am I heading down? Which direction am I going in? Which choice am I making? This is your faith. It is not your parents' faith. They cannot hand this to you. You have to decide. And so we have to wrestle with the question, which direction are we heading in? And here's the thing about Jesus, though. He died for us either way. Whether we choose him or we don't, he died for us, just like he died for both of those criminals. And that's because that's what Jesus came to earth to do. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Matthew 18, he he says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for one that is lost? If he finds it, I tell you the truth, he'll rejoice over it more than the 99 others that didn't wander away. And then Jesus says this, which I love. He says in verse 14, In the same way, it is not, it, it is, it, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Even one. And so Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. This means that his purpose And his reason for coming to earth and his reason for going through what he went through and what we're reading about in this series was so that people like us wouldn't wander aimlessly through life. He didn't just die for some people, right? For the people who at the last moment accept grace, he died for everybody, for you and for me, for lost and broken people who are searching for hope and searching for peace and for forgiveness and for life. And that was his mission until his last breath. And many of you have chosen grace and chosen forgiveness. You've repented, you've turned away from the way that you're living, you've turned toward Jesus. But for those of you who haven't, what is holding you back? What is stopping you from putting your faith in Jesus and taking your next step and getting baptized? Because at some point, you have to make a decision. You have to make a choice which direction you're heading in, you do. And ultimately, not making a decision is making a decision. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this. A lot of Christians use this story to justify why they don't need to get baptized, right? And the argument is because the thief on the cross wasn't baptized and Jesus still promised him heaven, therefore, I don't need to do this. And some of you have heard this from friends and family. Maybe you've even heard it from a pastor. And so if it's kind of tickling the back of your mind, we're going to talk about this for a second. The reason why that isn't good biblical teaching or good biblical understanding is because this happened to Jesus before Jesus resurrected from the dead and before the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to us by God. You see, after Jesus dies and resurrects from the dead, he spends some time uh, with his followers leading and teaching and equipping them to spread the gospel, the good news that he died and rose again to the entire world. And after 50 days of doing this, Jesus goes up into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes down. And the best way I can explain the, this idea of the Holy Spirit is it's God living within us. Right? It's this opportunity for, for us to have his spirit inside of us that can lead and guide us and help us go 
down the right path. And the thief on the cross didn't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when he repented because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given by God to his people yet. Right? This man got to go to heaven because Jesus was right there promising him eternity. And so I guess the best way I can say it is this. If, if Jesus in the flesh told you to your face that you are going to heaven, I don't think you need to worry about anything else, right? <laughs> but if Jesus in the flesh didn't do that to your face, I don't think you can use this story as a reason why you won't take a next step, right? Because it's, it's misunderstanding the death, burial, and ultimately the resurrection. On top of that, on the day that the Holy Spirit came to earth, Peter began to preach, one of his followers began to preach to a crowd of thousands about how he saw and how they experienced Jesus resurrect from the dead. Ultimately, they were saying, we know that he is the Messiah. And the Bible says that there was a crowd listening and it pierced them to their hearts. And then they asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter responded 50 days after they saw Jesus, each of you must repent of your sins and turn toward God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they asked Peter, what do we do if we believe this? And he says, repent and be baptized. Turn away from the way that you're living, turn away from the way that you're thinking, and turn toward Christ. And then you proclaim that step, you proclaim that belief through the death, burial, and resurrection of your own self through baptism. One of the books... I've been referencing a lot lately. It's called Core 52 by Mark Moore. If you're looking for uh, just a great book about biblical understanding, I would encourage you to read it. Moore was a professor of New Testament theology for over 20 years at Ozark Christian College, and now he's a lead teaching pastor at probably the largest church in America. And when it comes to knowing the Bible, he runs circles around me, and he probably runs circles around most of you. So I'm just going to read what he wrote in his book about baptism. He wrote this, baptism culminates the process of salvation, and the New Testament assumes that every believer will accept this beautiful gift from God. He continued, baptism is the appropriate biblical expression of real faith. Baptism is the proper response to faith in Jesus, making our new life in Christ by imitating his death, burial, and resurrection. And baptism connects us to God through faith in Jesus Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so listen, some of you have been following Jesus for a long time and you've never taken that next step. The thing is, it's time, right? And this story isn't a reason why you shouldn't be doing that. And we, we know that, and I think you know that as well. And some of you have never been baptized, but you're leaning into your faith. You're leaning into your belief. Now's the time to take that step. And here's the last thing I'll say when it comes to this story and baptism. If your decision to not get baptized is based on a thief on a cross and not Jesus, or if your understanding of the importance of baptism is based on a thief on a cross and not Jesus, you're probably focusing on the wrong thing. You're probably focusing on the wrong truth. Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus taught baptism. Jesus was also the son of God and could promise heaven to whoever he wanted while he was on earth. And these two things are not in conflict with each other. These are two very different parts of this incredible story of Jesus' life. Now, I want to finish with this, because the truth is, I know that there are people here who have taken the wrong deal at some point in their life, right? They've chosen the wrong path, and they're living in the consequences of that, and some of you have done that, and you feel the weight of that every day. And while you're sitting here, and you're hoping that Jesus can save you, you are not sure he will because of how you've lived your life. 
One of the things I love about this story is that up until the last moment of their lives, both of these guys have made the same decisions. They are both criminals. They are both on a cross. Like their trajectory was the exact same. There wasn't really anything different between the two of these guys. But in the last moments of his life, the second guy made a change. And so this story is a reminder that it is never too late to receive the grace of God. As long as your heart is still beating, it is not too late. The deals from Jesus are always on the table, even if you say no in your teens, even if you say no in your 20s, even if you say no in your 30s, it's still there. The thing is, I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what sin you have in your life. I don't know what brokenness you feel every day. I don't, I don't know the pain you're experiencing. But what I do know is that Jesus wants you to have life that is so much better than the one that you're living right now. And this story reminds us that he was willing to die so you could experience that, if you want it. Let's pray. God, when we read this story, um, we are a thief on the cross. God, we are not you. We are not a savior. We're not a Messiah, God, we are not perfect. And so as we wrestle um, with this, we have to realize that we're, we're one of two men. We've messed up, we've sinned, we've fallen short, we didn't trust you. But God, we still have a choice that we can make. And God, until our dying breath, we can say yes to grace. And we can say yes to forgiveness and we can say yes to your love and your mercy. God, you didn't ask the guy on the cross to change his life, to get off the cross and, and go live differently. But because of his belief, because of his repentance, his change of mind, you promised him heaven. So God, as we put ourselves in this story, as we put ourselves into this picture, God, help us understand that we have two choices. God, it's either yes or no. There's no middle ground. There's no in between. It's either faith in you and grace and life, or it's death, and destruction, and pain, and, and really just continuing in the life that we're living. And so God, I just pray for, for those of us who um, are struggling right now, who are just wrestling right now with life, and faith, and our relationship with you. God, God I pray that this story is a reminder um, of your goodness, and your grace, and really just how much you love us, and... Um, God, that you want to give us a better way. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.